Hey, if you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to go to uh, the New Testament book of 2 Timothy. Uh, as Jeff said uh, at the top of the service this morning, uh, we're going through 2 Timothy, uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, really looking at what God is saying to us uh, about what it means to leave a legacy. And of course, 2 Timothy was written a long time ago by uh, the Apostle Paul uh, to his protege, uh, young Timothy. And it was uh, Paul's way of saying, hey, uh, Timothy, here's the deal. Uh, I'm getting ready to leave this earth, and uh, I need you to carry on the faith. Uh, I need you to be faithful in your life, and I need you to pass the baton of faith so that future generations know. And I love this idea, this thought of uh, leaving a legacy. We are literally reading someone else's mail about how they were intentionally passing on the legacy, uh, their legacy of faith in Jesus Christ, one generation after another. And here we are. We are the product of Paul and Timothy's legacy, the ways in which they were faithful uh, to the church uh, in which they lived, and we continue uh, to be a part of their legacy. And so as we go through 2 Timothy, uh, today, uh, the big issue or the big idea that we're looking at has to do with this idea of the gospel as truth. What does it mean for us to think about leaving a legacy? And what we're really talking about today is the truth of the gospel. Now, this is kind of an interesting image that I put up there for all of us this morning to kind of take a look at. Uh, I was at my office this week, uh, also known as Panera, and I went by one of the bulletin boards, and uh, there was a sign up there that said, hey, email us uh, your truth. You ever heard that, that everybody's got a truth now? You know that? Everybody has a truth now. Everybody, you all get to have your own truth uh, according to the culture, and we just got to claim our truth, Right? And uh, so this is kind of the, the world in which we live. Are we going to just live in our truth? Am I going to just live in my truth? Uh, or are we, as Jesus followers, going to live in the truth uh, of, of Scripture, the truth of the gospel? And, you know, it's, it's crazy times uh, in which we live. And it's so easy to understand uh, why so many folks uh, are, are confused about what the truth is today. Uh, people are cynical People are jaded. People are asking, hey, what's the truth? What is really the truth? What's the true truth? Um, and uh, I was listening to a radio program uh, a couple weeks ago uh, about some news editors, and they were talking about we are living in such strange times, and, and they are even recognizing as news editors that all of us are now taking on the role of being news editors. There's so much news, so much information out there. Once upon a time, you probably remember the day, uh, at 6 o'clock, you'd be like, oh, time to sit down, and we'd all sit down, and we'd watch one of three channels, and we'd watch the news. And uh, by 6.30, um, we were all kind of on the same page in terms of the events of the day. Uh, what happened, what's going on in the world, and, and at 6.30, we had to go do something else because there was nothing else to learn about the truth. But those days are long gone, right? Because we live in a day and time, 24-hour news cycle, and uh, not just three news stations, uh, but we have dozens, if not hundreds, of different news sources, 24 hours a day, just bombarding us. And we can even choose our own truth, right? We can even decide which truth we want to listen to. And so we are living in this age and time where you're, you're a news editor, I'm a news editor. And I think especially when it relates to, uh, to the coronavirus and all that we've been going through over the past 18 months, it's just like, 
Who in the world are we going to listen to? And so uh, I found this um, clip this morning that I thought, uh, you've probably seen this on social media. I know you're all very social media savvy, but uh, I wanted to share this with you because I think this really kind of gets at uh, what is the truth and really understanding you know, how we're supposed to live our lives. Yeah, I really don't understand why everybody isn't following the same rules right now. They're very clear, so let's take a minute and let's go over them again. First, you must not leave the house for any reason, unless, of course, you have a reason, and then you may leave the house. All stores are closed, except those that are open. And all stores must close unless, of course, they need to stay open. This virus is deadly, but don't be afraid of it. It can only kill people who are vulnerable and also those who are not vulnerable. We should stay locked down until the virus stops infecting people. And it will only stop infecting people if enough of us get infected that we build immunity. So it is very important that we get infected and also do not get infected. You should not go to the doctor's office or the hospital unless you have to go there. Unless, of course, you are too sick to go there. This virus has no effect on children except for those children in which it affects. The virus remains active on different surfaces for two hours or four hours or six hours but in most cases it's days and not hours and it needs a damp environment or a cold environment that is warm and dry in the air unless the air is plastic schools are closed so you need to homeschool your children unless you can send them to school because you are not home if you are at home you can school your children using various portals and online classrooms unless you have poor internet more than one child only one computer or you are working from home baking cakes can be considered math science or art if you are home educating you can include household chores within their education curriculum and if you are home educating you may start drinking at approximately 10 a.m every day if you are not home educating children you may also start drinking at approximately 10 a.m masks are useless at protecting you against the virus but you still need to wear one because it can save lives. And in some cases, it may even be mandatory, but also maybe not. You must not go to work, but you can get another job at which point you may go to work. Stay home. I don't know how many more celebrities we need to have tell you how important it is to go outside and take care of your mental health. There is no shortage of groceries in the supermarket. There are simply many things missing. You don't need to go buy a bunch of toilet paper, but you should buy some in case you need it. If you are sick, you may go out once you are better, but those in your household, they cannot go out once you are better, unless, of course, they need to go out. Animals are not affected by the virus, except for that cat that tested positive in Belgium in February, plus a couple tigers. The number of corona-related deaths will be announced daily, but we don't know how many people are infected because we were only testing those who are almost dead to determine if that's what they will die of. The people who die of corona who are not counted won't or will be counted, but maybe not. To help protect yourself during these times, you should be eating well and exercising, but exercising only eating what you have at home to avoid going to the stores unless you need toilet paper or a fence panel. It's important to get fresh air, but don't go to parks, but do go walk in other places. Just don't sit down unless you are old or pregnant. But if you do sit down, don't sit for too long unless you are old and you are pregnant, in which case you need to sit down. But if you do sit down, don't eat unless you've had a long walk, which you are allowed to do if you are old or pregnant, except for times in which you aren't. Don't visit old people, but you have a moral obligation to take care of old people and bring them food and medicine. And finally, no businesses will go down due to coronavirus except those businesses that go down due to COVID-19. I hope this cleared up any questions about what we should and should not be doing during this time. Please educate your friends and family with this information so we can remove any and all confusion surrounding this time. Thank you. 
Have you, have you seen this? How absurd is that? But it's real too, right? You know what's really crazy? Um, when this woman did this, it was shortly after a pandemic was declared in the United States. This has been around for well over a year. And you would have thought over the past year we'd get all this stuff cleared up, right? But it's just gotten muddier and muddier and muddier. And so we're asking ourselves, what in the world are we supposed to do? Right? We get all these conflicting messages. And, and depending on who you're listening to, it's just like, what's truth? What's real? And I'm reminded that as Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate, Pilate was in that place where he's just like, the world is crazy. What is going on? It was just chaos and pandemonium. And there is Pontius Pilate looking at Jesus Christ, the truth incarnate. He says, what is truth? And he kind of throws up his hands. I think that's the world in which we live today is what is truth? It's so hard for us to know what is true. And so the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to his protege, Timothy. And Paul is really concerned about truth. Because at this point in time, false teachers have crept into the church. And they're starting to teach and preach lots of things that frankly are not true. And people are getting confused. And they're falling away from the church. And here we are 2,000 years later. And false teachings have made their way into the life of the church. People are confused, and people are falling away. I think it's so interesting that we just continue to ask the same questions over and over again. I love Mark Twain, and here's a Mark Twain quote as it relates to truth. He says, a lie can travel around the world and back again, while the truth is lacing up its boots. Isn't that great? Lies just spread. Lies just, you know, they go viral. They go everywhere. But the truth, it's not always easy to get a hold of, and the truth is oftentimes very slow to really get at and to really understand. And this whole idea of what is true or what is the truth, it really goes back to the very beginning of time. Adam and Eve the garden of, in the garden, the Garden of Eden, and the snake comes up to them, and the very first question the tempter, Satan, says to Adam and Eve is, did God really say, did God really say you could not eat the fruit of the tree? From the very beginning of creation, Satan is casting doubt on the truth. And here we are, and we continue to wrestle with the truth. And people today continue to ask this question, how can we really know what is true? How can we really know? Did God really say? Is God really still speaking today? Does God's word really authoritative and still truthful? So Timothy, Paul says, let me talk to you. I got some words to say to you. Second Timothy chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. Paul writes to Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Preach the word. 
And why would we preach the Word? Why is it important for us to preach the Word? Why is it important for Timothy to preach the Word? And if you weren't here last week, let me just bring you up to speed. What we looked at was this this Scripture text last week, 2 Timothy 3.15. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God, that's you, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And what we talked about last week is this book is not just any old book. This is not just like one of your favorite books. This book is actually God-breathed. The very breath of God has breathed on this book. And last week we talked about that God doesn't just breathe on everything and anything. And when God created the world, he, he, he looked at the dust of the earth and he kind of made a little pile together and he formed a man and, and there's a man just laying on the ground. And so God breathed life into that man and the man came to life. That's how God creates things. He just breathes on things. And then we looked at another passage last week where there's Jesus in the room with the disciples and they're freaking out and they're trying to figure out what to do after the resurrection. There's chaos and pandemonium. People are wondering, now what do we do? It says, Jesus walked into the room after the resurrection, and he breathed on the disciples. And then the Bible says they came to life. This is what happens when God breathes on something. It comes to life. In the Old Testament, in the New Testament, Paul tells us that this is the very breath of God. 770,430 words. Not just some of these words, all of these words. Everything in the Old Testament and the New Testament, God breathed the very voice, the very presence, the very breath of God. This is why we pay attention to God's Word, because it is God-breathed, and we consider that it is the truth. You know, Jesus was once asked, hey, what do you think about the Bible? What do you think about Scripture? What do you think about the Torah? And Jesus said, you need to pay attention to it. You need to read it. You need to study it. You need to obey it. You need to follow it. And in his greatest sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, it's recorded. This is what Jesus says. For I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And so Jesus takes it even a step further. He says it's not just the kind of overall, but even the smallest of details in God's word. You need to pay attention. Every last word matters because words have power and you got to pay attention to every single word. And, and the, 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 one of the translations is, is a jot and a tittle. Remember, we talked about that last week, and and this translation is really about the smallest letter or the least stroke of a pen. It all matters is what Jesus says. You know, it reminds me uh, of of the story uh, of this wealthy couple who was planning to go on a trip, and uh, they'd been planning for some time to go on a trip to Europe, and uh, that that was a long time ago, apparently, but they were planning to go on a trip to Europe. 
And then we're going to do all the, the, the fun stuff as, as you travel around Europe. And then we're going to go shopping and, and do all those good things. But at the last minute, uh, the husband, uh, he got called into a business meeting. And so he said, tell you what, why don't you go ahead to Europe? Uh, I'll be there in a few days. I've got this really important meeting I can't miss. Uh, go on ahead without me. Um, and you just start enjoying things and I'll catch up to you. And so the wife is like, okay, I'll do that. And so she goes off to Europe and she's, you know, gallivanting all over the place doing what we do when we travel to Europe, but they had a lot of money. And so she's starting to shop a little bit. And one day she finds herself in Paris at a jewelry store. And she thought to herself, I finally found the perfect bracelet. Oh my goodness, look at this bracelet. And she's thinking, I got to get this bracelet. So she gets out her phone. She texts her husband and says, I found the perfect bracelet. It's beautiful. I want this bracelet. It's only $75,000. Can I buy it? And the guy's sitting in a business meeting. You know what happens? You're sitting in a meeting and your phone buzzes and you're just like, oh, you know, uh, oh, I got a text from my wife. So he picks it up. He says, hey, just a second. I need to take this text. He looks at his, his phone and, and he reads this text and he's like, Whoa. He texts back, no. It's too much. It costs too much. The price is too high. He sets it down. His mind's kind of spinning. He's stressed out. He's anxious. Well, you know what happens when you send a text to somebody when you're, you know, in a hurry. Sometimes autocorrect fixes things. Sometimes you don't exactly text exactly what you think you're texting. And so what he thought he texted was, no, price too high. But he forgot the comma. And when she looked at her phone, she read, no price too high. And she thought to herself, I have the best husband. So you know what she did? She bought that bracelet, right? Because he forgot a comma. Words matter. Punctuation matters. Context matters. Syntax matters. This is why when we gather on Sunday morning, sometimes I share with you all uh, words in the original Greek and Hebrew language. I'm not doing that just for fun or to, to show you that I know some stuff about the Bible. It's really important that we understand context and grammar and structure and how things are put together in the Bible. Because what people will oftentimes do is they will take a passage of Scripture, they'll lift it out, and they'll take it out of context, and they'll use that, and that kind of comes their life verse. It really, really matters. So what Paul is saying is, here's the deal. You need to preach the Word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, Timothy, you keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. 
And so 2, 3, and 4, 2 Timothy 4, 2, 3, and 4 have got some uh, appositional nouns in them. And I just underlined them in my Bible. Preach the word. And I underlined the word in verse uh, 2. Verse 3, sound doctrine. I underlined that word. Verse 4, the truth. These are appositional nouns. And what they really mean, they all really mean the same thing. Hey, Timothy, this is really important. God's word. The truth. Sound doctrine. And of course, on this Reformation Sunday, it's not lost, I I hope, on any of us that this was one of the crux of, of the issue of what it meant to be in the church. There was a power struggle of how decisions were going to get made, about the authority. Who's in charge? Who's making decisions? Who's going to call the shots? The leaders of the church said, we're calling the shots. And Martin Luther said, no, it's not how it should be. The Bible ought to be calling the shots. So 500 years ago, this is what Luther wrote. A simple layman armed with Scripture is greater than the mightiest pope without it. Pretty radical in his day. But what Luther is really doing is he was elevating Scripture, saying, this is authoritative. This is the truth. We need to pay attention to it. And as in Luther's day, even today, we continue to live with this temptation of picking and choosing in the Bible what we want to read, what we want to follow, and what we want to obey. We kind of pick and choose with all this. And I think one of the classic examples of this this pick and choose your Bible verse uh, comes from the Old Testament, Jeremiah 29, 11, right? Let me read Jeremiah. You guys know this verse, Jeremiah 29, 11. I'm going to read 11 through 14 because uh, it's so good. Uh, this is what uh, uh, Jeremiah says. For I, God says through Jeremiah, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in a future. You know this, right? Some of you have this plaque on your wall at your house. Some of you have this on a coffee cup, right? Then you will call on me and I will come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. And we love Jeremiah 29, 11 through 14, right? Because it gives us so much encouragement. We think, God's got plans for me, right? Well, the problem is, after Jeremiah 29, 11 through 14 is verse 15. So let me keep reading for you this morning. I'm just going to go 15 to 21. You may say the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon, but this is what the Lord says about the king who sits on David's throne and all the people who remain in the city, your fellow citizens who did not go with you into exile. Yes, this is what the Almighty says. I will send the sword, famine, and plague against them, and I will make them like figs that are so bad they cannot be eaten. 
I will pursue them with the sword, famine, and plague, and I will make them abhorrent to all the kingdoms of the earth, a curse, an object of horror, of scorn and reproach among all the nations where I drive them. For they have not listened to my words, declares the Lord, words that I sent to them again and again by my servants. That's the prophets. Uh, and, And exiles have not listened either, declares the Lord. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, all you exiles whom I have sent away from Jerusalem to Babylon. God of, uh, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says about Ahab, son of Kaliah, and Zedekiah, son of Messiah, who are prophesying lies to you in my name. I will deliver them into your hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he will put them to death before your very eyes. Now, how many of you have a coffee cup that says, he will put them to death before your very eyes? Because what Jeremiah is doing, he is pronouncing judgment on God's people because they have disobeyed him. See, we love Jeremiah 29, 11 through 14, right? And we just stop reading there because we don't like the other parts. And it gets worse and worse and worse. And those of you who are reading through the Bible, we just finished Jeremiah a a, a couple days ago, and it gets pretty brutal, right? Pretty horrible how God allows all this persecution, all these horrible things to happen to God's people. And just for fun, yeah, I put a coffee cup up there uh, because we've got those coffee cups, right? We just don't have uh, the verse that says that uh, we'll be killed, uh, our, our children will be killed before our eyes. The theological term for this, and we've talked about this, is eisegesis. And so I've even given you the uh, dictionary uh, definition of this. Eisegesis simply means an interpretation, especially of Scripture, that expresses the interpreter's own idea, bias, or the like, rather than the meaning of the text. So what eisegesis really is all about, it's like, I got an idea about the world, about my family, about my community, whatever the issue is, and then you start going looking through the Bible and trying to find a verse for it, right? Anybody ever seen that before? It's like, I got a verse for that. But the starting point is my own personal opinion. It's my truth. And then I'm going to have the Bible justify my truth. And this is the world, sadly, in which we live. This happens over and over and over. I think one of the classic examples of eisegesis is is Thomas Jefferson. You know Thomas Jefferson, the former president of the United States. The guy who wrote the Declaration of Independence. He wrote what's what we call the Jefferson Bible. And what he did is he literally took a, a pair of scissors and he started cutting in the Bible. Because Jefferson, he was a man of the Enlightenment. He didn't like the miracles. He liked Jesus' teachings. He just didn't like all the supernatural. So he started cutting away at the Bible and pasting and putting the Bible together as he wanted it. I mean, who's got the arrogance, the audacity to cut up the Bible and make the Bible what you want it to say? Well, we do, right? We've got that arrogance. We've got that audacity, right? We all do that. We're all guilty, and we at least have that temptation saying, this is, what the Bi- this is what I want the Bible to say. And so we go looking for verses. We go looking for texts that justify our truth and our opinions. Now, how we ought to be reading Scripture, the responsible way to read Scripture. It's called exegesis. And again, the dictionary definition is this, 
critical explanation or interpretation of a text or portion of a text, especially of the Bible. And so what exegesis says is, okay, I'm going to approach the Bible with a blank piece of paper. I'm going to come to the Bible without any of my biases, without any of my uh, uh, desires, any of my what I want the Bible to say. I'm just going to come to the Bible and say, okay, God's Word, speak to me. God's Word, speak to us, whether I like it or not. That's what exegesis is. And that's what we are called to do. And that's, frankly, what the Apostle Paul is teaching young Timothy. He said, you know, there's going to be teachers that come along. And they're going to teach things to, we just read this, suit your own desires. The itchy ears of the people who don't like. So they're going to reinterpret what's going on. Paul says, be careful. There are false teachers among you. And this is why we did a sermon series this spring. We did seven weeks, I think-ish. We called it counterfeit. We talked about all the different heresies, all the different false teachings in the life of the church. We didn't do that just kind of for fun or for an esoteric exercise of good to know. We did it because we need to be careful And there's a lot of false teaching, even in the life of the church. Jesus taught about this even. Again, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7. Jesus says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. These are the words of Jesus. Be careful. This is why I want you to bring your Bibles to church on Sunday morning. Don't just take my word for it. Don't just trust me blindly. Fact check me. I need to be held accountable. I don't have the corner on truth. I make mistakes. And I'm grateful. A couple times, some of you guys have reached out to me and said, hey, you shared this on a Sunday morning, and uh, this is, you know, I I did a little bit of research, and this is not exactly what uh, the truth was, or I think you misspoke. They were right. I'm grateful for that. I need to be fact-checked. I'm human. I make a mistake. I make a lot of mistakes. That's my kids. I make a lot, a lot, a lot of mistakes. That's why you need to be reading Scripture for yourself and reading into God's Word and to be cautious, to be careful. Paul says to Timothy, preach the Word. We've got to take that seriously, to preach the Word. When I come and stand before you on Sunday morning, I don't want to come up here and share my opinion. I want to come up here and share my truth. I want to come up here and share with you God's truth. I really view my role as a pastor is to just read through God's Word and and maybe throw out a couple examples to get you all thinking about how this might apply to your lives. So we need to be in this together. The true preacher on Sunday morning, make no mistake about it, is not me. The true preacher on Sunday morning is the Holy Spirit. 
And before I come and preach on Sunday morning, every Sunday morning, my prayer is the same. God, I've prepared this week, and I'm giving this message to you for your Holy Spirit to do what only your Holy Spirit can do. And if my words are false, get rid of them. If there is a point that needs to be brought up, Holy Spirit, you need to speak that. And sometimes some of you will say to me, hey, the message really spoke to me today. My response is simply praise God. Because that's not me. Those are not my words. Those are the words of the Holy Spirit. What comes out of my mouth before it hits your ears is the Holy Spirit moving and interpreting. This is what Paul says or how Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Christ Jesus and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and my great, with great fear and trembling. My message, my preaching were not with wise persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the, Holy, of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Paul says, I'm not a great preacher, but what I do is I just invite the Holy Spirit to show up in my preaching and allow the Holy Spirit to touch and speak to people's lives, to transform them, to encourage them, to challenge them to live as followers of Jesus Christ. So as we think about the word, God's truth, it's only through the Holy Spirit that this speaks to us. The power of God's truth, the power of the gospel, only comes to us through the Holy Spirit. Now, the illustration I was thinking about this week uh, is, is kind of like a, a, a balloon. There's really, I think, only I can only figure out a couple ways to keep a balloon up in the air. And what we can do is uh, I can blow this balloon uh, like I did uh, this morning, and then I can just kind of knock this balloon up in the air. And I was thinking, what if I just did this during the entire sermon, just kept knocking this balloon up in the air over and over and over? I think after a while I'd get tired, I'd get exhausted keeping this balloon up in the air. And this is what we try and do so much in our own lives. We try and read God's Word through our own power. And it's kind of like batting a balloon up in the air over and over and over. And you know, you come to church on Sunday morning and it's just, it's, it's way up there, right? It's like, oh, by Monday it's coming down, Tuesday, Wednesday. By Thursday, you're kind of like, I am so tired of batting this balloon up. Uh, it's just my effort over and over and over. And by Saturday, you are worn out, right? This is what we call work salvation. It's trying to read God's word on our own power, it's trying to do life on our own power, even as Jesus followers. It's our own effort to keep the balloon, to keep our faith up in the air. But of course, there's another way to keep a balloon in the air. And it's to let go of ourselves and invite something else 
inside to be transformed, to fill this balloon from the inside out and lead us and guide us. And I could preach all Sunday morning like this. I could preach all Sunday afternoon and I'm not tired. I'm not worn out because the Holy Spirit is doing what the Holy Spirit does. Does all the work. And so I think some of us, we get frustrated in our lives. Well, how do I preach the Word? Because this isn't just written for pastors, right? Preach the Word. This is written for you too. Preach the Word. Preach the Word. We're like, I don't know how to do it. I get tired. I get worn out. I get weary. I'm exhausted. Preaching the Word. Paul comes to us. He says, allow the Holy Spirit to do it. Bring your effort, bring your preparation, but allow the Holy Spirit to preach the word. How do we leave a legacy? We trust in God's truth, the very breath of God in our lives. We read it, we study it, and then we allow the Holy Spirit to move and breathe in our midst to communicate the gospel, the good news, the truth to those around us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who, who comes to us with everything we need. God, you have spoken in the Old Testament through the prophets. God, you have spoken in the New Testament through the church, through your people like Paul Timothy, James, John, Peter. And God, you're still speaking. You speak through us. Not our own power, not our own effort, not our, as Paul says, our own eloquent words, but through your Holy Spirit. So God, less of us, more of you. And when we do, we can be confident that your truth is proclaimed. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.